This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9. Good morning. You're listening to the best of the Breakfast Grill for 2022. I'm Philip C. On the final episode of the year, we revisit the more unusual interviews we've conducted on the show, reflecting the unexpected and curious nature of the world. Malaysian scientist Florence Tan grew up in a fishing village in Moa, but has charted a career in space exploration. She's currently the chair for the Small Spacecraft Coordination Group and Deputy Chief Technologist at NASA. In a time with NASA, she's been heavily involved in projects exploring Mars, Saturn and the Moon. I spoke to her in July, where Florence shared with us the goals of NASA in searching for life beyond Earth. I presume the biggest secret we want to unearth is rather whether there's life elsewhere in the solar system. So what are the endeavours and projects that NASA is pursuing at the moment to answer that question? The search for a life elsewhere, let's let's talk about that theme, right? In the solar system, you have to, why is there only, why did life just show up? How did it evolve just on Earth and nowhere else that we know of, right? Mm-hmm. How did that happen? And we're sending missions to understand the conditions of life, say, on Mars, right? And those are the rovers that we have sent in, in those two rovers. There are actually four rovers, five rovers. Sojourner, which is the Pathfinder, and then you know about Opportunity and Spirit. Those have since outlived its life, very, very long-lived. It was supposed to be there for 90 days. And then we also have Curiosity. That's the, one of the missions I supported. And then uh, Perseverance, which is our latest uh, rover. And all these rovers are interested in understanding the conditions, right, that exist about well, the Amazonian, I guess, as this, these different eras yeah. uh, in Europe. In Mars, where where it was once believed to be uh, warm and wet, and That's right. how did that evolve, and whether life existed back then, right? Certainly, Curiosity looked for they they followed the water, and they they believed that the ingredients of life, right? What's life, right? You have to have certain ingredients. Number one, you have to have the chemicals of life, right? That builds your your cells, right? I call it chinops, right? Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur. You have to have some energy, right, to to bind these things, and you have to have a transport mechanism like water. So the, the Curiosity figured out early on, way, way early on is in, in, in a mission, that, that the, the ingredients for life did exist. There are the right conditions for life on Mars. So what's next right. you know, for these rovers? What is the intended goal for the next five to ten years? For Mars, for example, we, we have Perseverance rover. We're caching samples to be returned. So that right now, Perseverance is roaming around, you know, caching samples. And then eventually there is a Mars sample return uh, mission, which is fairly complex. You know, as you can imagine, you have to take a, not just get there, right? All the rovers, once you land, do not actually take off and come back, right? You, it takes a lot of energy. So you would have to take the samples, cache it somewhere, then send a craft over to be an orbiter. To collect it. Send a lander to land, pick up the samples, yeah. take off, and then from the, using the orbiter to, to, again, escape Mars gravity to go back to Earth. So that's a lot of steps. So Mars yeah. sample return or MSR is the next uh, Mars missions. And I guess um, timeline-wise, are we really thinking about putting man on Mars? Is that a very la- viable that timeline? Is a, that is a goal, right? That's, That's a goal. A, is that a 20-year, 30-year goal or 50-year goal? I, I am not going to uh, speculate <laughs> on that yet. But I can tell you the, the near-term Mars sample return plan. I also asked her about women's participation in STEM and how she feels about the admiration she has received from Malaysians. 
So when I, I did a degree in chemical engineering, when I did my degree, you know, about 20 years ago, you could count the number of women engineers by just two hands. You know, have you seen the progress in NASA? Is women participation in STEM improved a lot in the past oh, yeah. 20, 30 years? Oh, yeah, definitely. But it's very interesting. You say that, you know, do I see it? A lot of women don't spend as long in the lab as, as I did. You're working uh, on hardware uh, and software. 57%, I think, of degrees in the US are conferred to women. And STEM, you think, oh, well, 37% STEM. This is like 2018 numbers, you know. Not, but what's interesting is that if you start build, looking at the numbers, psychology is considered STEM. More 80% of the psychology graduates are women. But if you go to engineering um, or computer science, the numbers go down. They drop. They don't represent the proportion of women in the society. It goes down to, uh, I think, in the 10% in the electrical, mechanical, you know, and civil aerospace, the, the hard, quote, hard engineering. And computer science, you know, actually dropped from 1984. The high point was, I think, 37%. It dropped to about 18. Again, this is 2018 numbers. But uh, this is just off the top of my head. But what I'm saying is that there, it's persistently hard to get women to come into the engineering type fields. I think part of it is, you know, okay, let me ask you something. Sure. Think about think about a nurse. Think about a teacher. Think about a social worker. Picture. Okay. Just yeah, the visual. Tell, no, tell me. What, yeah, it's yeah, a woman. Visual, the right? visual is a, a, a nurse with a little white hat. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Instinctively, it's a, it's a woman. woman. Right? Yeah. Teacher? Instinctively. Yes. Right? Correct. Yes. Okay. That's my bias. Now, think of, Think about, think about, think about, you know, somebody who is a, a fire rescue person, right? A police, a police, uh, and uh, an engineer, and and just think about that. And now tell men. me what you, what, yeah. in your mind's eye, what you think about. The visual is a man. Is a man, correct? Yeah. You don't ever look at somebody who's a woman and say, oh yeah, engineer, right? You don't. And, and so, so this whole bias actually comes in when you're even so young because your kids' little cartoon book have a picture of a nurse or a teacher, and they're always women. You know, many many Malaysians are so proud of you. How do you feel about all this? admiration from Malaysians? I feel this attention is totally undeserved. Uh, you know, there are lots of people who are so much more accomplished and better. I've been so lucky, right? Mm. And and in the right place, the right time. And so, and, and a lot of it is enabled by my teachers, by my friends, right? By my colleagues and by my family, right? Above all. So I think that it's, uh, while it is, thank you, right? I really appreciate, but I honestly was taken aback and I didn't know what to do. In fact, I was, tra I was traveling during this time. So I I, I like okay. I'm not in Malaysia anyhow, and I and I'm not like a I don't tweet tweet and I don't um, do Instagram. I know or Facebook. <laughs> so I kind of been insulated from that, perhaps. Yeah, so yeah. that's actually good in some ways. I had a couple emails and and LinkedIn requests, you know, that came in. But honestly, I'm happy to um, say that you know, hopefully, it keeps me grounded. That was Florence Tan, Small Spacecraft Coordination Group Chair and Deputy Chief Technologist at NASA. From searching for signs of life on Mars, we now shift our attention to entertainment on Earth. TVB is a name synonymous with the golden age of Hong Kong entertainment, cult classic TV series and Kanto pop at its best. But with China's rise as a world power, is a shift to more Mandarin content inevitable? And could we soon see a rising Malaysian star in TVB? These are questions Keith Kam posed to Desmond Chan, General Manager of TVB International. Do you see TVB pivoting towards more Mandarin content than Cantonese, seeing as, well, I mean, there is the Beijing influence which we cannot really ignore? Well, because Hong Kong is a Cantonese community, the majority of the people in Hong Kong speak Cantonese. And under our TV license issued by the Hong Kong government, um, we are obliged to produce and to broadcast our contests mainly in Cantonese. So Cantonese will remain a significant market 
that we have to take care of. Having said that, we also see that, well, there is an increasing demand for mentoring programs. And that's why in mainland China, we also have our own production team in mainland China producing contests in Mandarin. And we are also going to do that of speak in Malaysia because many of our Malaysian tenants could speak fluent Cantonese as well as Bahasa. So we don't rule out the possibility of producing our contents in Bahasa eventually. Desmond, I cannot let you go without addressing the China influence in TVB's editorial direction. I know that under the Hong Kong's broadcasting ordinance, TVB and other TV stations can only be controlled by local residents. First of all, how much does Beijing influence the decisions made on what can and cannot be aired? None at all. I could say very firmly that there's no Beijing influence on TVB editorial. So all... What you suggest is just a woman. TVB has accepted 16 Malaysians into your annual acting class. The alumni include people like Zhao Yunfat, Leong Chi Wai and Zhao Xingqi. So these 16 come out of 62, which is like about a quarter, with the rest coming from the mainland and Hong Kong. What do you see in the talent pool in Malaysia? I've seen their performances and they are really good. They could perform very professionally. And people in Malaysia will know that I'm not lying to them. When they watch the Star Academy show on our TVB J channel, they will agree that, well, actually the young tenants in Malaysia are really professional. And what they are lacking is just a chance. And we are here. TVB is here to provide the chance for them. We'll provide them with grooming and professional training. Actually, they are receiving professional training from Hong Kong now. Um, we also find them opportunities to show their talents on stage and on TV. So I'm quite confident that at least we could make one or more Zhao for Malaysia. That was Desmond Chan, General Manager, TVB International. We'll have more highlights from conversations on The Breakfast Grill in 2022 after these messages. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Philip C. and you're listening to the best of The Breakfast Grill 2022. Today, we are reflecting on unusual and unexpectedly thought-provoking conversations on the show. This year, inflation became the leading issue of concern worldwide, with food prices skyrocketing due to a confluence of factors, including the war in Ukraine and erratic weather affecting crops. The last thing retailers want to do during a cost-of-living crisis is to increase prices on everyday items, especially on food, but can producers swallow steeper costs? Back in July, Wong Xiaoning discussed the massive challenges facing egg producers with Mark Williams, CEO and Secretary of the British Egg Industry Council. So, Mark, at this current cost versus the average prices that you sell it to, be it retailers or to the food services, are British farmers losing money on every egg they produce and roughly by how much? Oh, God. Again, a really good question. Um, the answer would be yes, they are losing money at the moment. Mm. Um, we've estimated that farmers need um, you know, a, a, a significant percentage increase. Um, that is very, very difficult to obtain. Oh, yeah, um, I'm going to ask you why is it difficult to obtain? Because I, I did a bit of mystery shopping, right? And I looked at the UK West uh, Tesco website to find out how much they're charging for a dozen eggs. So £2.20 for a dozen free-range eggs. So am I guessing that this is below the average cost of producing or is it, or you're just barely breaking even? 
No, £2.20. It roughly costs uh, around £1.35 to produce mm. um, a, a dozen free-range eggs, but that is just uh, a farm price. By the time it's then transported to the packing centre, put into a nice box um, and obviously weight-graded and quality-graded, um, boxed up and then sent off to a retailer, there are additional costs there. In many ways, we, we as an industry have been selling our eggs for, for too low a cost for many years, um, which has meant then there's always been economic pressure on producers. Um, that has been managed. Um, and as I said at the beginning, you know, we, we, we are responsible in that we obviously want to keep costs down for consumers. But because of the cost crisis going on at the moment and the huge increase in particularly food raw material prices and transport costs, fuel, energy, etc., then these cost increases are going to have to be um, passed on, sadly. Um, Otherwise, we just will not have uh, producers keeping on producing eggs. Meanwhile, in an effort to improve animal welfare, UK Parliament successfully introduced legislation that outlaws the use of cages for laying hens. Mark shared with us the perspective of the British Egg Industry Council on this development. But what about, I mean, these so-called enriched cages, which still exist, right? Because you're saying yes. it's... Uh, some would argue that it's it's still not the best. You know, it should be total cage bans. Is BEIC very resistant to that? Is that really driven because of the higher cost of implementing a total cage ban then? Okay, so when we met the 2012 battery cage ban... Uh, the UK egg industry invested four hundred million pounds, so, so you know times that by mm. five for for ringgits, and yes. that was totally the industry's money. Okay, no government money at all um, to make the changes. So therefore, if I'm an egg producer and I've invested into an enriched cage system, clearly I've got to pay my bank loan off, uh, and so I want a usable life from that. Mm. Okay, from from that equipment. Um, so you're right, the government is set out in its policy manifesto um, uh, that it would wants to move away from cages in all farming systems, not just laying hens, as has the European Union. And um, the European Union is supposed to be coming forward by the end of next year with um, uh, proposed legislation. Um, our current government, because the Conservative government, um, is toying with the idea of, of coming forward with proposals. Uh, it should probably happen six months ago. It hasn't happened yet. Will it happen? I guess so, but I wouldn't be 100% sure because government recognises there is a cost of living crisis. Mm. And, you know, all systems of, of, of egg production have advantages and disadvantages. So me as a farmer, my job is to make sure I maximise the advantages to help the hens and their welfare and minimise any disadvantages. So compared to a battery cage, an enriched cage... You know, we use um, uh, much bigger cages, so you can have potentially up to 80 hens all moving around in this. It's, it's almost like an aviary, actually. Okay. Um, so hugely improved welfare over a battery cage. But our problem is it's still called a cage. Yes. And, 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 and to many people, its perception is actually more important than reality. That was Mark Williams, CEO and Secretary of the British Egg Industry Council.
2022 has shown us how vulnerable we are to climate change and the importance of conserving Malaysia's green lungs. In conjunction with World Wildlife Day in March, Shazana Mokta spoke to Dr. Lim Tengwin, adjunct professor of ecology at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, to better understand what forest cover means and how Malaysia is faring in forest preservation efforts. Now, according to official estimates, Malaysia has maintained 55% forest cover so far, in keeping with the pledge that we originally made at Rio de Janeiro in 1992, and also in line with the national forestry policy that was launched last year. However, as optimistic as that statistic sounds, what does that actually mean? Because I don't think it's as simple as just painting half the country green, right? Right. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. You're right. So the issue is how you define forest cover, what's forest and what's forest cover. If you do an assessment, and there have been some scientists in Singapore that did an assessment in 2010 using satellite images to see how much tree cover there is uh, that matches the original tree cover, the so-called natural forest. That found that Malaysia is only fifty, uh, only forty-five percent forest cover, and that was in 2010. Now, the reason for the government statistics saying that it's fifty-five is the way the government determines whether or not an area of forest is based on a legal definition. If the area is zoned as a forest reserve, for example, even if that area doesn't have any trees left on it, it is still considered a forest. And that is the this this problem with the definition is the source of a lot of um, conflict between the government and NGOs. NGOs are uh, many NGOs have been claiming deforestation, claiming logging. When the government turns around and says, oh, "No, there's no deforestation," it's still considered a forest, even though uh, there are no uh, natural forests remaining. As long as it's under tree cover and the forest reserve, it's still considered a forest. I have a question about the terms forest cover and tree cover. Are they Mm -hmm. the same thing or are they different? All right, this is a good point. The Malaysia forest policy, which was approved last year, and that says the pledge is 50% forest and tree cover. And so tree, what, what are trees? Well, trees include rubber trees, maybe even palm oil trees, or even <laughs> banana trees, perhaps. Unfortunately, the forest policy does not define what is meant by tree cover, and it leaves it open. And therefore, this whole 50% thing is very shaky. If, if they allow rubber plantations and oil palm to con- be considered tree cover, then uh, you look at the statistics, we have 73% forest and tree cover. Now, in past conversations, Tequin, you've enlightened me that the term permanent forest reserve in the Malaysian context doesn't necessarily mean untouched forest or uh, protected forest. Um, What's the highest level of protection for a forest then? And do we know how much of this makes up our forest cover? Yeah, so um, we have about 13% of our land area under what are known as totally protected areas. And these include areas such as Tamanagara, wildlife sanctuaries, areas that really cannot be touched at all, like no logging is allowed inside. And so that is the difference between a protected area and a forest reserve. Forest reserves have two broad classes. One is for protection, but the other is also for production, meaning the area is reserved for growing timber, for growing trees. That was Dr. Lim Tekwin, adjunct professor of ecology at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. 
Similarly, forest preservation is crucial to ensure the biodiversity of the natural ecosystem. The world's smallest bear, the Malayan sun bear, is a keystone species, but its population has declined by at least 30% in the last 30 years. In the same panel discussion, Dr. Wong Siu Ti, CEO of the Bornean Sun Bear Conservation Centre, explained the important role of the sun bear in the wild. And sun bears are considered a keystone species. Could you uh, help me understand what that means? Okay, so while well, sun bears are known as a keystone species because the presence of sun bears affect many other wild trees and wild plants, you know, and we know that they play very many important ecological roles, such as as a seed dispersal. When they eat fruits, they disperse the seed, and therefore the seeds are carried away far away from that mother tree, and that process called seed dispersal is a tree planting process and many studies have shown that the further away the trees the seed being carried away from the mother tree the higher the chances of survival so in other words they are tree planters sun bears are also known as forest doctor because when they feed on termites some termite species like the microserotermites are known to attack live tree so when there's a sun bears feeding on this group of termites actually control that group of termite population in the forest and preventing many trees from being killed by this termite. Sun bears are also known as forest engineer, you know, when they feed on uh, stingless beehive, stingless bee and honey, and they actually excavate a big hole of the tree and that, that cavity is later being used by um, nests for uh, hornbills, for example, uh, flying squirrel, for example. So they build nests for other people. They are known as also, they're also known as forest uh, farmers when they do digging, look for earthworm, they like farmers plowing the soil and losing the soil and hence the soil nutrient cycle. And also, they are also a food provider, you know, when they feed on termite nests, decay wood, there's always something left behind. And there are many animals like bitter pigs, pheasants, uh, burning ground cuckoo and other birds all tagging along the bears. Uh, all in all, mixed sun bears, the presence of sun bear will affect the survival of many wildlife species in the forest and therefore they are known as keystone species. When this keystone species has been removed, many other wild plants and wildlife will be affected in the forest ecosystem. From your perspective, how difficult is it to revive populations of vulnerable species like the sun bear? Actually, quite difficult. You know, one thing is that, say, for example, sun bears, they don't breed like pigs, wild boars, bearded pigs, one liter you're talking about, you know, can crank it up, you know, seven or eight or nine piglet. And then uh, for sun, for all of these large mammals, they all share a very similar characteristic where they have a very slow reproduction rate. A female in her lifetime can only produce up to like three to four cups in her lifetime. And then in the wild, if they can live for like 13, 14 years, that is considered as long. Mm. You know, so they, you know, with this kind of uh, natural uh, birth rate, and then, and then they have to withstand all the natural mortality rate from like predations, from competitions, from diseases, from, uh, yeah, from uh, uh, lack of food and that kind of thing. So it is actually quite tough. And then if there is any kind of human caused mortality, regardless, this is deforestation, regardless, this is hunting and poaching, then the population is, is, is not viable and easily being wiped out from the surface. That was Dr. Wong Siu Ti, CEO of Bornean Sun Bear Conservation Centre. That caps our retrospective of Conversations Unusual on The Breakfast Grill this year. You can listen to all the interviews featured today via podcast on the BFM app or on our website bfm.my. 
This has been the best of the Breakfast Grill 2022. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.